You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. This time, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Allport, the author of Britain at Bay, the epic story of the Second World War, 1938-1941. Dr. Allport, how's it going today? Very good, thank you. Nice to be here. (laughs) Excellent. So we're going to talk about Britain in the 1930s. And when discussing Britain in the 1930s, there are a lot of different ways to kind of approach the topic. Um, I'm going to choose the global approach first. So the British Empire, uh, you sort of, I really like it that in your book, you kind of start your section on the British Empire with, I'm going to, I'm going to quote here. It's difficult now to remember just what a permanent fixture the British Empire once seemed. So, so with that in mind, was the empire something that kind of normal people even thought about or had it moved into the kind of area where it was mostly only discussed among political leaders? and its sort of existence was just assumed among society? Well, I think people, old and normal people, were uh, aware of it and not aware of it at the same time. I mean, I think it's interesting what you just said there about the idea that it had sort of moved on, because I, I think the thing is, is that really the empire had always been an elite project that was mostly in the consciousness of the politically elite and the social elite. And there had always been this frustration amongst empire boosters, this going, you know, all the way back to the 18th century, about the idea that not enough Britons seemed sufficiently interested or engaged or or understanding even about the empire that was being built, at least in in theory, in their name. Um, I I think what's interesting in in the interwar period, I mean, of course, the empire... It's a rather paradoxical moment for the empire because it's both at its greatest extent immediately after the First World War with the acquisition of a whole new uh, sub-empire in the Middle East and so on. But of course, it's also a a period of of increasing um, instability in the empire because of the rise of nationalist movements and so on. And of course, there is a a kind of centrifugal force as well, which is gradually pulling the dominions, what used to be referred to as the the white dominions of Canada and Australia and New Zealand and and to to some extent, South Africa as well, sort of pulling pulling away from the the metropole. So there is an attempt in Britain uh, in the 20s and 30s to try and make empire more prominent in the public mind. 
And you get that in a variety of different ways. I mean, the, among the more famous are the, the empire festivals that take place, the exhibitions of empire uh, in, at Wembley in 1924. Of course, that's where Wembley Stadium, that's why Wembley Stadium was originally created. And then there's one in Glasgow in 1938 and you have also a lot of institutions which are, are are created with imperial branding for the first time the british broadcasting corporation i think is very much seen as an imperial project as well at first um an empire to some extent is becoming more important in people's lives because it's becoming economically more important to the, the to the united kingdom uh because of the uh, the creation of an imperial preference scheme, tariff scheme, and after 1932, um, Britain's exports are not able to compete as efficiently as they had once done on the global marketplace. So there is an attempt to try and create a kind of protected market in the empire. So there is, a, you know, a greater emphasis on purchasing um, food and other, um, you know, raw materials and, and uh, you know, basic items throughout the empire. Now, to what extent, however, this really worked is a is a different question, though. Um, you know, empire is, again, it's something people clearly were aware of. They had been taught about it at school. It was something that they would encounter in newspapers and so on. To what extent how they really cared about it is a, is a more complicated question. I mean, I think if you think, for instance, about the India uh, controversy in the 90, early 1930s, so Churchill and some other uh, diehards within the Conservative Party attempt to try and obstruct the passage of the Government of India Act, which is going to provide greater self-government to India. And this never really becomes a popular cause in Britain. Um, it's, it's something that's largely confined to discussion amongst the political elite. And Churchill's position, I think, frankly, is regarded as, as a bit eccentric. It's a, you know, it's a sort of Victorian throwback. Uh, if anything, it's something that casts something of a shadow over him, I think, for the, for the rest of the decade. Um, what you do see, I mean, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, if you think about the, the Second World War itself, again, it's a slightly paradoxical moment because the empire is crucially important for Britain's ability to actually wage war um, and the contributions both in terms of manpower and uh, technology and raw materials and so on from throughout the empire is absolutely essential. But I also think that the and this is something that you know historians like David Edgerton have written about a lot recently, is, is that you get a much greater national consciousness during and as a product of the Second World War. I think the British people by the end of the Second World War think of themselves much more as a, as a, as a national people rather than as an imperial people. Uh, and that's partly a product of the war. The other thing that I would say about this is that, you know, empire has become itself... A, a more complicated concept between the wars. Uh, it, is, it is no longer something that can be talked about in quite the same uh, uncontroversial and somewhat self-congratulatory way that it had been before 1914. You know, the Victorians had had no, no qualms about celebrating the idea that they had gone out and conquered lots of, uh, lots of territory and lots of, and lots of peoples. After World War I, uh, and the rise of, you know, of course, with Wilsonian uh, rhetoric about national self-determination and so on, a greater sense that, um, you know, popular sovereignty is, of course, the, the fountain of all legitimacy in government. It is, it is more complicated to defend empire than it had been. And so to some extent, uh, the, the British Empire has to go through a rebranding process in the, in the 20s and 30s. So instead of it simply being, again, a celebration of British power, 
it's more about a celebration of British values. And one of them, well, one of those values is peace. And so one of the big arguments for the empire is, is that it is a world of peace. It is, it is, you know, it, it is a, an example to the rest of the world of how, you know, territories vastly different in terms of their geography and their populations and so forth can all live together in harmony. In some ways, it's seen as being a kind of model for the League of Nations, uh, that this is the way that you can get international uh, harmony. The other, the other way in which the empire is defended is, is, is of being a kind of schoolhouse in self-government. So the idea is, is that, you know, ultimately the purpose of the British Empire is to try and educate its, its peoples in uh, responsible self-government and that ultimately the, the sort of end goal of the empire is to basically dissolve itself and is to, uh, you know, is to, is to allow the, you know, the crown colonies at various stages, depending on their, uh, you know, their, their uh, development to achieve dominion status and then presumably to be sort of quasi-independent. Now, the idea that the British Empire was actually set up to do this is, of course, complete nonsense. I mean, this was not, this was never part of the plan at all. Um, but it becomes a kind of way of sort of retroactively justifying what they what they've done. But they still think, of course. I mean, you know, with with the passage of the Statute of Westminster in 1931, um, you know, Canada and the uh, um, which is one of the first dominions to sign up, and then a bit later uh, during the war. Um, you know, Australia does and so on. I mean, the, the, you, you know, you're clearly moving towards, um, you know, a very, very uh, diffuse kind of empire there. Um, the African colonies presumably will be able to sign up for this at some point or other, but the, I think the idea is still in the 30s that this is a long, long way away. This is, this is we're talking about generations and generations. So, um, it, but it is nonetheless the kind of the, it, it's interesting that it's a sort of way in which the empire has to be um, talked about a little more defensively than it had ever been before. You know that you have to sort of couch your imperial pride with with a certain amount of understanding about the the way that you know empire is not quite a, an uncomplicated concept anymore. Yeah, I think that the the idea that that by having this empire, uh, they are helping people. Like I know that's a big part of like if you t if you look at like French empire an imperial sort of outlook during the interwar years. It's all couched in like, we're helping, we're helping. Um, and, and that's also part of the mandate scheme after the First World War is all about, oh yeah, we're going to help these people move towards what we think of as the proper society. Well, it's, a, uh, it's empire is a kind of responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is often couched in those terms that it is, a, it is you know, it, it's trusteeship. It is actually something, it's a, it's, a, it's a necessary burden which is taken on by, um, you know, powers such as Britain and France in order to, again, to both create international peace and then also ultimately to produce this kind of educating effect. I mean, we can, you know, look at this with a, something of a grain of salt, but that is the way, I mean, you know, there obviously there are people who genuinely believe this too, uh, but that is the way that it has to be rhetorically justified now. Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Um, and I think it sort of thinking broadly about your book and how you approach a lot of these topics you know, you're, you talk a lot about how we look back on this period and the, the entire like place that empire plays in this history almost feels like it gets overrepresented because of its importance to the elites and the, to the people who are end up writing histories after the war. Uh, I, I have to mention Churchill there, I think maybe. Well, well, you know, Churchill's entire project is his, his grand life, lifeline, lifetime project is to, of course, to defend the British empire at which of 
you know, ultimately is a complete failure. I mean, you know, uh, for a number of different reasons, many of which were out of his control. Um, I, I don't think that it is a a concern which is shared necessarily by a large number of other Britons. Um, I think that I think the, it's interesting. Again, we're sort of thinking about the jumping ahead to the war itself here. But I mean, if you if you look at the way in which people conceive the wars against Germany and Japan, is interesting. I mean, the war against Japan is much more of an imperial war than the war against Germany. That you know, Germany is um, not really a serious threat to the empire in the same way that Japan is, and it certainly doesn't conquer imperial territory in the same way that uh, Japan does. But the war against Germany is always taken a lot more seriously, um, both in terms of an existential threat, but also in terms of its basic legitimacy, the justification for the sacrifices that are necessary. The war against Japan, I mean, you see this especially, of course, once Germany is defeated in, in May 1945, and the war against Japan is going to continue. And, uh, of course, before the, H, before the A-bombs, rather, that, you know, people think this could go on for another two years or more. This could go on until 1946, 1947. Um, there is very, very little enthusiasm, either amongst the armed forces or the civilian population, about continuing this war. It doesn't mean that they're going, they're going to refuse to do it, but they're certainly not going to enter into it in the same kind of spirit as they had the war against Germany. You know, the, 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 the idea of being posted to what was then called the Far East, you know, is sort of treated with horror, I think, by most, most servicemen who, you know, basically think, you know, look, I signed up to, to fight Hitler. You know, I didn't, I didn't sign up to, to defend India about which I could not care one whit, you know, uh, you know, the, the Japanese are not going to be landing in, you know, Kent or Surrey, um, you know, in the same way that the Germans might have done in 1940. You know, what happens to India is of no interest to me whatsoever. It's just, you know, some, some bloke from Godalming or whatever. When we, when we are talking about kind of more what I would phrase as normal people in, in Britain during this period, uh, you make a point to talk about kind of some of the problems that some of those people would have experienced in British society during the 1930s that are maybe glossed over sometimes. Uh, I, you know, some of the examples I think of are like you mentioned, like the massive wealth inequality, um, sort of the the idea of like universal suffrage is a very new concept, very you know not necessarily well received by everyone kind of concept. Uh, could you talk a bit about some of the the kind of the facts of British society at this point that you think might surprise uh, surprise people? Sure. I mean, I think that you know one of the biggest ones is what you've just mentioned there, which is that Britain is a relatively recent democracy uh, on the eve of the Second World War. We tend to think of the the war as being about defending democracy, which to some extent it was or it became. But Britain had only really been a democracy since 1928 in the sense that we would now understand that term in that, you know, the vast majority of adult citizens had the vote. They certainly, uh, that hadn't been the case at the outbreak of World War I. Um, and even after 1918, of course, very large numbers of women are still excluded from the vote all the way until the, the late 20s. So there'd only been, on the, on the eve of the Second World War, there'd only been a handful of elections that had actually taken place under what we would now consider to be democratic uh, terms. And people didn't really know um, what democracy would, would bring, whether it was uh, something to be applauded or to be feared. This is certainly something that the elites um, often ponder. I mean, it, it is, it is, it, it, 
One of the problems, I guess, of the interwar period is, is that an, an awful lot of domestic and international problems seem to be arising at the same time that democracy has arisen. The empire appears to be under threat in new and unprecedented ways. There are new on, you know, economic problems, particularly persistent unemployment in, in areas of Britain. Um, now, the fact that this is now happening in, under democratic circumstances does raise the question up, well, is democracy the reason? Is democracy the problem? Is it producing worse government than, than it existed in the, you know, in the Victorian period? And it's still a bit too early to tell. Um, certainly, uh, it seems to be something which is here to stay, but, but um, certainly for, for those who were on the conservative side, there is a, a good deal of um, wondering about this. And even somebody like Churchill, uh, throughout the 1930s, makes remarks which um, you know suggest that he's not. He, he blames to some extent popular opinion for things like the um, you know what he regards as being disastrous policy in India. Um, and there is a lot of thought amongst the anti-appeasers in the 1930s that Chamberlain's policy is being pushed along by by unwise popular opinion because it's because it is popular. It's extremely popular. Not um, going to war. Popular. Not right. Not going to war is a very popular thing to want to do in the in the nineteen thirties, right? So, you, so, so this is this is one of the questions. I mean, I think the other thing we ask about surprises, things that would have or perhaps were surprises to people at the time as well, is the survival of the Conservative Party. I think is is the great thing that has to be explained in some ways about the interwar period. I mean, it, the context of this is that the the Conservative Party. Uh, had been defeated disastrously in, in 1905 in the, the great election that brought the Liberals to power. And basically, before World War I, had, had lost all of the big battles, lost all the big political battles. Um, the, they'd lost the battles over the budget. They'd lost the battles over um, tariffs, over the reform of the House of Lords, which was one of the great bastions of the, of the old Conservative Party's power. And, they, and they, crucially, they'd lost the battle over Ireland and, and home rule. And so, you know, on the uh, by the end of the First World War, in many ways, the Conservative Party appears to be a party that's kind of on its last legs. Um, it has, you know, it, it's it, it's lost all of these big issues. It had it traditionally been the, the 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 power base of the landed elite, the landed aristocracy, who are themselves in decline uh, for a number of different reasons. And now we have mass suffrage. So the assumption amongst many people, including the, those on the left, is that you know we will have perpetual uh, socialist government from now on with the masses. And that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen remotely. In fact, actually, the opposite is the case. With the exception of two very brief periods, 1923 to 4 and then 1929 to 31, um, the Conservatives are continually in power in the interwar period, either governing alone or as the, mem the dominant members of a, of a coalition. Um, now the question, of course, is why? Why is that? Why is this party that seems as though it had no chance actually proved to be dominant? I mean, I think part of it is the collapse of the Liberal Party, uh, which creates a huge open space for the for the Conservatives to move into. So the Liberals, I mean, it's, it's rather complicated why the Liberals collapse, but a good deal of it has to do with personality politics. So the two 
biggest figures in the Liberal Party, Asquith and, and Lloyd George, fall out in the middle of the First World War, and their, their kind of rivalry continues on into the 1920s. They patch things up eventually, but by then the damage has been done to the, the Liberal Party as an institution. And a huge number of former Liberal voters, middle-class Liberal voters, have switched to the Conservatives. It's partly because the, the, their own party has kind of uh, fallen to bits. I think it's also the, the fear of Bolshevism as well as plays an important part in the kind of revival of conservatism. The middle classes, you know, are, it scares the bejesus out of them to think of Lenin, you know, sh- showing up uh, and, um, you know, uh, sort of the red guards in, in, in Trafalgar Square and so on. So an awful lot of panic about the, the possibility of Bolshevism arriving in England is part of it. Um, I mean, the other thing as well is to credit the conservatives, you know, that Stanley Baldwin, who's the dominant conservative personality throughout the period, is a very smart political operator. And one of the things that he manages to do is to rebrand, in some ways, the conservative party, reconceive it as being the party of the suburban middle classes rather than the the landed elite. Um, he has the the vast majority of the middle class vote. The middle class are extremely well organized, coherent voting group during the the interwar period. He also importantly has a, has a he has a minority, but a but a large minority of working class votes too. Uh, the Tories managed to persistently uh, attract you know something between you know a quarter or a third of, of what we would now think of as the working class, particularly. Um, the kind of respectable, aspirational middle class, uh, sorry, upper working class. Uh, in the new economy in the Midlands and in the South, um, the new kind of industries that are emerging in the, in the interwar period. Labour, by contrast, the Labour Party, which ought to have been the great beneficiary of mass democracy, is still in many ways seen as a very regional party. It's still seen as one which a sectional party, which has the narrow interests of the old industrial working class in, in say, you know, parts of the north of England and uh, South Wales and the industrial belt in Scotland and so on. This isn't, this isn't really perceived as being a national party uh, anymore and that, at, at this point, and that won't really happen until 1945. I mean, the other thing as well is that the Labour Party is very, very meek when it actually gets into office, there had so you know when when Ramsay Macdonald becomes prime minister in 1923, there are you know lots of these sort of duchesses who sort of think that the the red flag will be raised over Downing Street and that you know this will be the this will be the dawn of socialism. And of course, Macdonald by this point, although he had been a something of a radical in his youth, is not like that at all. He doesn't want to alarm anyone, and his uh, uh, his his chancellor Snowden is probably more conservative economically than the Tories are in terms of, you know, his belief in free trade and balanced budgets and sort of Gladstonian economics and everything. So um, the, it, labor, labor is, you know, disadvantaged in a, in a way too in the fact that it's so respectable that it doesn't really attract the, any kind of, uh, of, of radical vote. I mean, I think that to sort of sum that up, you know, the, the big thing which I think is hard for people to remember now is how popular the national government, which the, which the conservatives dominated, was in the 1930s. Uh, because we tend to think, think of it as being a failure for the two reasons that, um, that there was persistent mass unemployment in parts of 
the UK. And also, of course, because it was tarred with the, with the brush of appeasement uh, and, the, and the, the military disasters at the beginning of the Second World War. And those two things, it's really the military disasters. It's what happens is, is because the national government is in power in 1940 and, and is, is seen fairly or not as being responsible for the defeats uh, in 1940. So the whole record of the national government is then revised and, 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 and looked at it again and sort of, you know, and, and is found wanting. Um, but that's really a kind of reinvention of what had actually happened because, you know, the national government had been tremendously popular in the 1930s. Uh, now, whatever else you may say about it, it was, it was following the people's will. This was overwhelmingly the government that was, that was elected into power. And actually in many ways, you know, even, um, Socialists like J.B.S. Haldane uh, grudgingly conceded in the mid-30s that actually the, the, uh, the national government had actually done a pretty good job of, uh, of, of you know, being able to stabilize the economy after the, the Wall Street crash in, in 1929. So that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of what I was trying to do in, in my book, Britain at Bay, was to sort of try and remind people that, you know, um, we see the 1930s through the filter of the Second World War. And there was a lot of reinvention of the past during during the Second World War. Uh, people people before the war just didn't see the world in the same way that they would do later. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Sort of another challenge with British politics of this period is like the kind of inescapable, like gravitational energy of like the appeasement versus anti-appeasement conversation. And then what happens with that, you know, when the war starts. But one of the things that has always surprised me about British politics during the 1930s, especially when you look at what is happening in a lot of other European nations, is the kind of political stability that that we see. And it sounds like, you know, obviously, there's always a lot of reasons to, to, for stuff like that. But it sounds like, you know, that the the sort of the popularity of the national government, the po- the popularity of a conservative left government is, is something that that is incredibly strong in Britain during this time, and probably helped with that stability in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, there had be, Britain had undergone a period of, of enormous instability 
at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think, again, I think that's somewhat forgotten now. Uh, the period certainly between about 1910 and really all the way into the early 1920s. Uh, so throughout the whole of World War One, you know, in 1914, um, it had seemed briefly as though Britain might be on the verge of civil war, uh, which was not, you know, we, we ultimately we don't know because World War One breaks out. And so uh, we don't know how events would have would have played out over Ireland. This is about Irish Irish home rule. Um, but it's, it seems to me entirely plausible to think that um, that the United Kingdom might have dissolved into a, into civil war, certainly in Ireland, uh, with pretty alarming consequences. Now, of course, in 19, uh, 1922, you have the Irish Free State, and that um, means that Ireland ceases to be a factor in the destabilization of the United Kingdom in the same way that it had been before World War One. Now, there's Northern Ireland, of course, um, but everyone chooses to sort of ignore that uh, and sort of pretend that it doesn't really exist. Um, and so the situation there is, uh, unle- you know, except when very unusual occasions where things get out of hand a little bit, it's largely ignored by the people on the, on the, in, within Great Britain itself. And other imperial politics doesn't really play a big role in domestic politics in the in the interwar period in this in the way that it, i suppose in theory it might have done so i mean of course there's great instability in places like egypt uh in palestine there is a you know a quite violent counterinsurgency war going on in palestine by the late 1930s and india of course and the the, the nationalist movement in india somebody like churchill would very much have liked i think the india issue to become a big domestic political issue, and it just doesn't. You know, people are just not interested in in sort of transforming domestic politics about this. Um, I mean, there is there is some electoral instability in the nineteen twenties because you you get a pretty rapid tra- tra- turnover in governments, um, but that is not really a reflection of any kind of deep instability i think within the the policy it's it's simply a it's a kind of artifact of the first past the post system um you've got this kind of this transformational moment where the liberal party is in decline and the labor party is on the rise and so the, the what we could sort of broadly call the left in britain is split up uh and and as a result of that it's a kind of complicated mess where it's hard to produce a um a, a government that can that can um, survive a full five year term. Both the Labour governments are minority governments, and they they ultimately have to rely on coalition support, and they ultimately collapse. Now that has largely resolved itself by nineteen after nineteen thirty one, as we just said. You know, the national government is is, is has an enormous majority actually, uh, and it's even in nineteen thirty five, it's re elected. Its its majority is slightly smaller, but but you know, not not much so. But I think that. The bigger issue here isn't so much, you know, the 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 surface bubbling, bubbling and frothing is one thing, but actually underneath the surface, there isn't really much instability in policy. As I, as I've just mentioned, you know, Labour is actually incredibly timid when it comes to um, trying to introduce anything that could be described as socialism. They're, they're, you know, it's it's an extremely small C conservative government in lots of ways with regard to economic policy. I think also to give credit to the big parties, you know, and this is something that's very much unlike the continent, you know, all of the big political parties in Britain in the in the twenties and thirties acknowledge one another's right to exist. 
within the existing constitutional framework. I mean, Baldwin doesn't try and, you know, he certainly competes against Labour, but he doesn't try and delegitimize Labour as being a valid government. When the moment comes in 1923, when there is to be a Labour government for the first time, Baldwin doesn't try to, to undermine this in any way. You know, he says, look, it's, it's, it's part of the system. It's going to happen, uh, which actually proves to be quite politically astute because I think perhaps he sees that this, this government isn't going isn't to last very long anyway. Um, and the personalities, I think, matter in this respect too. Um, as I've already mentioned, Baldwin, the King is probably worth mentioning too. I, I have him very much in mind because I've, I've just um, uh, just read a rather good um, biography of uh, of George V by I'm just uh, by Jane Ridley. I've just got to try and remember the name. Um, and George V's position. I mean, George V is is totally a Tory. Uh, and, and, you know, very much his private opinions about socialism are, you know, are, are uh, you know, on, on, on uh, principle. But he also is somebody who sort of thinks that his job is to be an impartial referee within the British constitution. And, you know, when Labour enters power, you know, he sort of thinks, look, you know, they, the other side, you know, they, they get to have a go like everybody else. It's, you know, the, the fair thing to do, the fair British thing to do is to let them have, have a fair crack at it. And actually, George V, it turns out, likes Labour ministers and Labour prime ministers much more than Tory ministers because they're actually much nicer to him. They sort of actually, they're, they're much more respectful and they, t- they take him seriously and listen to his ideas and everything. So actually, he becomes a bit of, a, on a personal level, he becomes a bit of a fan of, uh, of Labour governments. Um, so you've got, so I think what you don't have in the UK in this period then is... is um, kind of a, a, a division that you, you see in the continent between, I mean, one thing, you don't really have big ethnic or regional parties that are very clearly only trying to represent a small section of the community. The big exception to this, the big kind of asterisk to this is again, Northern Ireland, where you do have precisely that, you know, but of course, it's a very small part of the United Kingdom. It's on, it's on the other side of the Irish Sea. People pretend not to think about it very much or to, or, to, or to say anything about it very much. What you don't have in the UK is a situation like you do in France uh, in the 30s. While I think sometimes the historians play up too much the idea of France as being this sort of disintegrating state in the 30s, uh, I do think it, it is fair to say that you don't really have in Britain the same kind of vitriol um, on the right for the popular front government uh, by the government of Bloom and so forth. You know, there are plenty of people on the right in, in, in France who clearly see a socialist French government as being more of a danger to them than, than the Germans, for instance. And this, of course, is going to play out in Vichy in the, in, in the, in the 1940s. I don't think you, you, you don't have that kind of toxic environment in, in Britain to the same extent. So the idea of, of stability, although, I, as I say, there are a lot of caveats to it, uh, it's not. It's not entirely a myth either. I mean, there is something about Britain which it which is distinctively different from politics on the continent. Yeah, I guess a big part of that, and you mentioned it a little bit, is that there isn't a group in Britain that is really questioning the legitimacy of the government in, in ways that you have right. in other nations, whether yeah. that's people or parties as uh, parties in the government that are participating in the government. So that's a that's a big part of it, probably. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got, you know, obviously on the right, you've got Mosley's, uh, uh, you know, fascists, 
who you know really never acquire a great deal of legitimacy themselves. They make an awful lot of noise. They do have a few influential, you know, well placed supporters. Um, but I think the I think fascism is always seen as a fundamentally un-British thing um, throughout throughout the the nineteen thirties. I think the thing that turns people off about it and this is perhaps something we can talk a bit more about in a moment when we 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 think about tolkien is is the violence uh people people are repelled by the violence they they're not necessarily repelled by all the politics of fascism in fact actually i think there might be some some there are some of its ideas are appealing but they're repelled by the by the idea that this is a um that this is this is a system which is which is founded on brutality um you know there are plenty of Plenty of anti-Semites in, in in Britain in the 1930s. There are plenty of people who don't like Jews. Uh, what they don't want to see, however, is Jews being beaten up on the street because that's something that you know is is in, in you know it's inimical to Britishness. It's not that's not the way that we do things. You know, it's uh, and that's that's mostly huge disadvantage. He tries very hard during the 30s to try and distance himself from the continental fascism to say that look we this is going to be a different kind of thing you know we're going to do things differently never really succeeds you know it's always because i mean it just can't, constantly keeps getting dragged back into the these rather ugly scenes at these protests and meetings and so on and i think it just ultimately turns off a huge number of voters who, who otherwise might have been sympathetic to some of fascism's ideas um, I'm going to call back to something you said several minutes ago now, but you mentioned this like fear of Bolshevism and how it had an effect in Britain. And I wonder if you, you're talking about some of the problems that Mosley had. Um, it feels like that, that for Britain, because there was no like strong communist presence, like fascism didn't have this great enemy that it could play up in those conversations by the time you get to the 1930s, like, like they had in some other nations. Um, but but I do I always I always like reiterate multiple times on the podcast when I'm talking about some of these that like fear of Bolshevism was a really important driver of events after the First World War um, in Britain and in many other places. Yeah, no, it's it, 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 hugely. Although, as I say, I, I think in Britain, its chief consequence is the continued you know survival and indeed it, it, you know empowerment of the Conservative Party. That you know that is that is the thing that Baldwin is basically able to market himself as as being the Conservatives being the great bulwark against um, Bolshevism. The Labour Party never really manages to completely um, remove this sort of this this fear in the back of people's minds. Again, Baldwin doesn't try and totally delegitimize Labour. I mean, he's he he, he plays a a, a, a care, careful hand with this. He he accepts the idea that Labour plays a legitimate part in the constitutional process. But there's still always that idea sort of in the back of the minds, I think, of a lot of Tory voters that, you know, that Labour is just one step along the road to, um, you know, to eventually the, the, you know, the red flag being raised, which again is, is deeply ironic considering just how conservative, small C conservative Labour economic policy actually is, you know, the very last thing on their minds is trying to seriously disturb the status quo. Uh, probably would have been good for them if they tried it a bit more, actually. But, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, they're terrified about the idea of going off the gold standard in 1931 or, you know, or abandoning any any kind of policy of, of, you know, balancing the budgets in the same way that Gladstone would have done. Um, but yes, I, I mean, that's, the, the, you know, the, the sort of the fear of the Russian Revolution is 
has a lot to do with the consolidation of that middle class vote, which I which I mentioned earlier, which really is the key to Tory fortunes. Again, one of the th- just sort of ju- briefly jumping ahead, you know, one of the things I think that happens in 1945 is that for a short period anyway, that middle class, the, co- the coherence of that middle class vote breaks down and actually significant numbers of middle class people for the very first time, perhaps the only time in their lives, are actually willing to vote for Labour. Um, it doesn't last. And the, and the Tories actually, again, achieve and manage another, you know, uh, great escape um, and, and will, you know, live to fight another day. But, um, but, but the, the, the way in which, uh, you know, the middle class vote uh, briefly um, diffracts, I think, is important to understanding what happens in politics in the mid 40s. So you start your book in the very first chapter talking about the Lord of the Rings, talking about Tolkien, talking about book, the Shire. A book which is not even written until the 50s. And so yes, yes. Completely, that, that completely machine... unreasonable in lots of ways. But <laughs> what you need to do when you're writing a history book, this is for anybody who listens to this podcast, if you start talking about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings in the first chapter, you've got me. You, you've got me <laughs> bought in. I'm in. I, I almost don't even care what you're writing about at that point. But I actually like, I really like, what you are actually talking about in that first chapter and, and what you kind of allude to throughout the book, um, you kind of use this Shire folk kind of viewpoint or, or view of of people at, of themselves at the time, of of how people view them from a later point. Could you talk a little bit about what that narrative is, sort of some of the, the basics of why you very clearly call it a myth, um, but but maybe also why it seems to persist so strongly sure i mean i mean first of all i should say you know when i when i talk about the shire folk uh, of britain this is not a, a a phrase that was used at the time it's not as though people actually in the second world war were talking about themselves as shire folk i mean lord of the rings isn't even published until the 1950s you know most people are completely unaware of uh, of, of jrr tolkien's so, i mean this is a retroactive conceit of historians um having said that though i, I do think that there is a resemblance, an interesting resemblance between the way in which the British thought of themselves um, in the 1930s and 40s and how Tolkien um, would, I mean, had already described hobbits, of course, in the, in the, in the, the book of the same name in the, in the 30s, and then later on would go into greater detail about it in The Lord of the Rings, published after World War II. And I think it's, it's, it's the way in which Tolkien was sort of tapping into that kind of self-conception of Britishness, consciously or not, I think is, in, is, is sort of illustrative. Um, Britain is very much seen as being, like the Shire, uh, a, the peaceable kingdom of the world. This is the, this is the little bit on the map, on the northwest corner of the map, in which you know, far from the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the great battlefields and far from the great dramas, this is where there is peace. Um, Contrasting greatly, of course, with Europe, continental Europe, uh, especially in the 30s. And then also, I think, to some extent, with the United States as well, which is also seen as being quite a violent place in, in lots of ways. You know, a dynamic place, but a violent one. Um, in order to sustain this idea of the peaceable kingdom, of course, that also means leaving a lot out, ig- ignoring a, a, a lot of things. The biggest part of that being, of course, the existence of the empire. Um, 
as I remind my students from time to time, you know, you don't conquer two fifths of the world's surface by being really nice. Um, you know, much as we might think of, you know, the British Empire as just being, you know, uh, all about tea and solar topies and and croquet on the lawn and so forth. No, I mean it's a, it's about the exercise of power. Um, but of course, the British, as I've said, were quite happy to ignore the empire in lo- in lots of ways, ignore the existence of the empire. Um, they were also prepared to ignore a good deal of violence that took place within their own society because the 1930s were a different time, and so we we you know a lot of, a lot of particularly to the middle class eye, I think a lot of violence that took place within working class communities was simply not registered. It wasn't considered to be of interest to the state. And uh, it was something that was largely out of sight and out of mind. Um, so, so gentleness is 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 one key aspect of this. Um, there is also the idea, I think, of a cult of amateurism that exists uh, in Britain during this period, and one which will very much be used to explain success, both failure and success, in the Second World War. It, it explains defeats. Because we could, we weren't ready, because we were sort of you know stumbling along, muddling through, while the Germans, who were this you know sort of fantastically well organized professional force, initially had the best of us. But of but once uh, the danger, you know, the period of danger was through a, a kind of native genius for you know inspired amateurism actually provided Britain with 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 victory. Now, I mean, this is complete nonsense. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, the British state was in many ways far more professionally organized than, than Germany. You know, if you look at something like the Battle of Britain, um, it is professionalism and, and, and sound organization which actually wins the battle. It is the Germans who are muddling through, who are the amateurs who are kind of, you know, trying to sort of you know, uh, make it up as they go along. Uh, but it is an important aspect in self-conception. Um, the same way with the class system. Too. I think that there is, and this is something again, which I think is, has echoes in the Shire and in, in Tolkien's ideas about um, the world of hobbits. You know, this deeply ingrained sense of a unity of people, but w- one that that is that is is maintained by a very stable structure of class differentiation. The reason why, um, hob, you know, uh, hobbit society is so uh, unified against external threats is because there is a recognition of the leaders and the led and there is no attempt to try and disturb that status quo sam gamji will always be the faithful batman or servant of of the of frodo baggins who basically sort of represents the kind of gentlemanly class of the uh, of the hobbits and if you see you know it, it, you, you see real life examples of this in things like so there's Noel Coward's uh, famous uh, 1942 movie in which we serve, which is a, you know a wonderful movie, piece of propaganda about the the, the destruction of a British of a Royal Navy destroyer, um, and you know Coward uh, powerfully evokes this uh, this very small sea conservative idea of a ship in some ways as being a kind of representation of the nation uh, as a whole, the, the, a well functioning ship is a kind of model for how the nation ought to be. And it is one, of course, with, with a captain and with officers and with uh, you know, NCOs and with, with ordinary ranks. And the reason that it, it functions well is because everybody knows their place and because there is a sense of mutual obligation and responsibility uh, to one another. 
that's something to me that seems to be very powerfully evoked in Tolkien's world. And I think it's one that the British thought of themselves as, as possessing. And, and, you know, it starts to get shaken up, of course, by, by the, end, the end of the war. New ideas are starting to emerge. But I think there's still is a very, very powerful essential conservatism, you know, even to, uh, you know, even if we, we, we look ultimately at Labour's victory in 1945. It, we, we talk about a little bit about how, sort of how people saw themselves at the time, but it seems almost just as powerful or more powerful to me looking at it from, from like modern day, looking back at how people portray events at the time as well. Um, it, it, mm. it seems like almost the, the dominant narrative uh, of Britain during this time because kind of caught up. With oh yeah. I mean, I think that it hasn't gone away at all. I mean, I think that the, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit about the movie Dunkirk uh, in, in, in my new book, the 2017 movie. This isn't not the one in the fifties. I mean, it's a movie which, in, frustrates me and, and fascinates me in equal measure. I mean, I find myself sort of, you know, tremendously irritated by it and sort of drawn back to it all the time. Um, it's a movie about the myth of 1940. And if you understand it in those terms, I think it's, I think it's a very successful film. It's not history. It's, it's, it's mythology, which borrows elements from history, but also tells a powerful tale which intersects with history at certain points, but it also diverges from it in important ways too. It, you know, to think about the, the the Dunkirk story as one of an essentially civilian story, which I think is what what Dun- that that movie tells. You know, so Mark Rylance as being the sort of middle aged skipper of this little uh, pleasure boat who goes out and then saves the um, you know saves the soldiers from uh, from defeat. Now, this isn't how Dunkirk played out at all. You know, the 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 little ships are significant, but first of all, they're mostly manned by Royal Navy personnel. And second of all, most of the troops who get off the Dunkirk, uh, get out of Dunkirk, do so from uh, on Royal Navy destroyers. You know, the the but the, the the little ships are, are an extreme. I mean, they're useful, in, you know, but and they're but they're they're far more important symbolically than they are uh, materially. But I think throughout that movie, you get that again. You get this sense of a gentle people who have been thrust unwillingly into a, into this violent situation, who are having to muddle through and make it up as they go along. You know, to deal with a kind of military reality which is basically unfamiliar to them. Um, and it is their genius for improvisation and the sense of a kind of national coherence which is underwritten by class differentiation, which I think you know shines through. Uh, I, I find it a tremendously moving film. You know, I mean, I, I do not, I, I, you know, the last 10 minutes or so I cannot watch without getting, you know, red-eyed, even though I am far more, more, more aware than anybody. I mean, I've written a whole book about it, about how it's basically mythology, but I'm, I'm wrapped up in the mythology too. You know, I mean, I, I, I can't pretend that I'm sort of, you know, I can emotionally detach myself from it. There's a reason why that movie was very, very successful. Yeah, there's a reason that that mythology is sometimes so uh, sort of powerfully attractive. And it's because... Yeah, oh yeah, it's a tremendously attractive story. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a hobbit? You know, I mean, who wouldn't, you know... As I say, I think that's one of the things about the story is that, that it's so compelling because it explains failure as well as it, it explains success. You know, it doesn't deny the fact that, uh, you know, hobbits have 
vulnerabilities, they have weaknesses, but they're attractive weaknesses in lots of ways. I mean, you know, sort of telling people that they're too gentle for this world, that they are too, you know, willing to always look on the, on the best side of people and to, to try and avoid violence, to try and avoid confrontation. I mean, this is not an unflattering thing to say to someone, you know, um, and it, and it, it, it is, a, it was a way of being able to explain away failure and also to explain why failure was could be flipped and turned into success as well. How disadvantages could be turned into advantages.